Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. John, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Like I said, this one's going to be without a form and a really a kind of congruent schedule here, but it's a pleasure to have you back, man. Thank you very much. I always enjoy visiting with you. I'm going to ask you a really important question. Why do you think history is important? Well, for a variety of reasons. I mean, history has always been important. And you, we, you, you can use the old cliches that history has a nasty way of repeating itself if we don't study and learn from it. And so there's always a pat answer. But I think as cliche and pat as trite as that response is, it's a, there's a lot of truism to it. Because when you look at the broad perspective of human history, there are patterns that develop. There are overarching themes that mark certain decades, past, present, don't know about the future yet, obviously. But I think when you break history down and dissect it into specific centuries, certain decades within those centuries, some are more crucial than others. And they tell us not only where we've been, but where we are at that precise historical moment. And hopefully we will learn as human beings if the crisis of that moment, historical moment was devastating, i.e. a World War I in the last century, a World War II, the Cold War, Vietnam for the United States, Afghanistan for the Soviet Union, Ukraine, Russia, right now. There are many similarities in all of these human crises slash events. And I've studied history for <laughs> decades. And when you look at the, the history of the great powers of, say, 19th, 20th century, I've come to the conclusion that the only country, the only great power that learned from its mistakes made in certain historical time frames, periods, events, crises, was Great Britain. I always tell my students they never made, rarely, I should say never, that's silly, rarely did the British, with their empire, make the same mistake twice. And then I give them the example, the, the, the classic, obvious example. And it, that is the simple one. If you look at the British Empire that will emerge in the aftermath of American independence, that empire will not only be an empire upon which the sun never set, but an empire the British were able to rule, control, by force sometimes, by a variety of different means, because they learned from mistakes, the several mistakes they made 
with the 13 colonies. The British had an empire upon which the sun did not set, never set. And I'm, and I'm sure you're aware of how vast that British empire was by, let's say, 1900 or even earlier, right? Virtually all of Asia, South Asia, Indonesia, Mal Malaysia, Singapore, Canada. I could go on. Australia, New Zealand. And they were really able to keep that empire intact till after World War II. Now, after World War II, there'll be the rise of these nationalist movements like in India, led by Gandhi, which will eventually force the British to relinquish India, right? But they learned from their mistakes made, beginning with the 13 colonies, and then other mistakes as well. Boer War of the late uh, 19th century. 1890, late 1890s into early 20th century, was a disaster for the British, a disaster. They were defeated by a bunch of South African, Boer, Dutch farmers, and a little more than that. But in effect, it was a humiliating defeat. It was kind of like their Vietnam, the Boer War. And uh, it was one that was caused by greed, the, the desire to take over the gold and diamond mines, which the Boers really didn't know existed in what is today, like Johannesburg and that part of Northern South Africa. I mean, they did, but they didn't. That, they weren't that interested in it, believe it or not. And so they, they made that horrible mistake and they were defeated in effect. It was a humiliating defeat for the British. The great British empire, the great British army was defeated by a bunch of farmers. And I mean that loosely. And but and they did, but they didn't make that mistake again. And and the British pretty much relinquished their empire, pretty much voluntarily, grudgingly, after World War II, because they realized they could not any longer maintain or sustain it. And plus, after World War II, you had this incredible rise, burst this volcanic explosion, if you will, of very important indigenous, indigenous nationalist movements, like in India and elsewhere, Africa, el elsewhere, Vietnam, Southeast Asia, for example, against the French. And it worked for the British. The French, by contrast, not so much. Yeah. They will not learn from their mistakes. They'll be defeated in Algeria. They'll be crushed, devastated in Vietnam, with despite massive United States support, which was a huge mistake by the United States. And I think when you what accounted for the difference between France and Great Britain is that British post-war leaders, mostly Churchill, because he kind of he's defeated right after the war. Clement Attlee takes over for a few years, but Churchill bounces back, regains the prime minister position and stays there until the mid fifties. And then he resigns, he was too, getting too old. But British leaders realize the reality that they could no longer sustain an empire of that magnitude. They didn't have the economic 
ability to do it anymore. Devastated first by World War One and definitely by World War Two. And so they gave it up. The French, by contrast, right, suffered from a Napoleonic complex, mostly embodied in Charles de Gaulle. You've heard of him. And they wanted to go back into North Africa, Algeria in that area, back into Southeast Asia. Now, in fairness to the French relative to Southeast Asia, Vietnam in particular, that was at U.S. behest. The Truman administration, believing in the stupidity of the domino theory, believed that by allowing the French to reoccupy Southeast Asia, particularly after 1949, when China falls to the communist, Mao Zedong is the communist, take over China, we had this ridiculous hysterical fear that, my God, the rest of the world will fall like a row of dominoes, particularly in that part of the world, to communism. Here's a classic example of your original question. The United States in the aftermath of World War II all of a sudden becomes the great power. And they had no sense of hist historically what that meant because we had been in, in isolation for so long. And so instead of learning from the mistakes and victories of other great powers, we didn't, right? And the British, because of their vast empire, had a very global understanding. They understood as best as any white civilization could, the indigenous people of their empire. They made a point of trying to understand the culture, the language, the history of that region that they occupied, colonized India, for example. And the British did something very wise. They ruled through the local power elite, whether it was India or Burma, Myanmar today, Thailand, pick anywhere, right? Something they learned from their experience with the 13 colonies. United States. We never did that. Oh, we tried in Vietnam, first with Diem, who was a disaster, and then Key and Two. We could just never find the right individual. We had no understanding of the history of Asia. I mean, you know, as a very well-informed, educated young man, Americans, we are notoriously an insular, isolated people. I have students in my classes forever who have never left Texas. And I ask them, how many of you have been to have traveled in the United States, across the United States, to other states, other regions of the country? A handful. How many have ever been to Europe? Maybe one. And most of those kids who've been to Europe, who've traveled, are not American kids. They're kids from other countries, right? God forbid we should learn another language, uh, mandatory. I mean, I'm a firm believer, particularly in the United States, particularly in the Southwest, California, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, and a lot of other places too, that we should be a bilingual country like Canada. 
mandatory. Every Canadian speaks French and English, some better than others. But we were, my wife and I, it was amazing to me. We uh, went to uh, Southern France for my, our daughter's 50th birthday. I'm an old man. And you look great. We stayed in this little tiny village called Tresson in the heart of Southern France, the wine vineyard country, wine country, beautiful, gorgeous. It was hot as hell, no air conditioning. It's amazing. However, I was shocked how many people in that village, a couple hundred people, village, in the surrounding region spoke English. Not great, but they could communicate. And between my butchered up French, which is, you know, okay, and their English, we communicated. But I was amazed in this little tiny town of a couple hundred people that they all, most of them, particularly younger people, and younger I mean, say 40 and below, maybe even 50 and below, spoke English. Enough of an English that I could communicate, that we could communicate. You can't do that in the United States. I live in Texas. Over 45% of our population is Hispanic, mostly Mexican, who've been here for literally centuries, the Tejanos, they speak perfect English, but they're all, they're bilingual. I'm bilingual. I can speak Spanish and Italian and English, obviously. But how many people can say that? I mean, the reason I speak Italian is I grew up in a very Italian household. That's the only reason. But I learned Spanish in school. And as we become a much more multicultural, pluralistic society and culture, which you, I'm sure, are aware of, Spanish is a very important language. Anyway, I'm sorry if I droned on. I apologize. No, you mentioned something really important, kind of hits back to the beginning what you're talking about. I mean, do you think that there's a government that does it properly out there that has done it right? I mean, you mentioned Britain's government. I think with hindsight, and it's only important if we recognize it. And the only reason I think history is really important is because you can learn from your past mistakes. But for Britain, they've never repeated their past mistakes. But for we we have a benefit in that aspect because we're constantly repeating our same mistakes, but it's about putting our foot down to stop those mistakes from going out. Like, for instance, I, I consider a big issue, and this is a cultural thing as well, too. France does not think about sex scandals the way we think about sex scandals. It's completely different. They laugh at us with the whole Bill Clinton thing and everything like that. But then you look you look at Britain. They don't talk about conspiracies like we talk about or try and handle conspiracies. To them, conspiracies are an average that's fine. It's not anything anybody's going to roll their eyes at. But here, they just demonize you. We attack ourselves about it. And it seems like the American government for the longest time has had this same way of thinking, the same way of controlling, the same way of going forward. And it constantly is repeating its same mistakes, same slips ups. They have to keep changing the formula, but it's still the same methods. And we haven't, as an American public, we have a lot of power, but we've just divided amongst ourselves. And in other countries, they don't have the hindsight like we do. We can go, well, they made this mistake 10 years ago. They're probably still doing it now. Now, so we should do something about it. But for them, they don't have that. They go, our government's not doing the same thing. So it's a positive and a negative. Yeah. And I think a lot of it also has their other fat. You are 100% correct. Could not agree more, by the way. Um, 
Another factor, too, is that we are a nation of, what, 333 million plus human beings, a multicultural, pluralistic society. We have been since, say, the 1920s, even earlier, but 20s going forward. We have a very, thus, a very heterogeneous population. If you look at Holland, the Dutch, very small, very homogeneous population. Most of the populations of Europe, save Great Britain, save France, to a certain degree, Italy, with the influx of Chinese into Italy, they're very homogeneous populations. You probably remember this just, what, a couple months ago, what, maybe a month, two months ago. We were in France when Macron, the president, had that issue, horrible riots in Nanterre because some policemen, sound familiar, shot some young Oh yeah, kid, yeah. Young kid of color. To me, that issue in Great Britain too. Very the Brits are working class Brits, especially are very xenophobic. This is the price of empire that both Britain and France are now paying because of the massive influx of people from their empire, right? Which started right after World War II in Great Britain mostly people of color, Africa, the Caribbean, etc. The Dutch have also had problems with uh, immigrate, immigrants from their Indonesia, Malaysia colonies, like Java, places like that. France, same thing, primarily North African. So they're dealing now, or in the last... 30 years, something we have, we, the United States, have dealt with since the 1890s going forward. And native white French, native white working class Brits are still having difficulty witness France recently with accepting individuals. There are very strong nativist national movements in France. Marie Le Pen, that's her whole uh, platform. Great Britain, Saint, uh, what's his name? Nigel, what's that guy's name? Nigel, Nigel Farage, that clown. Very strong nativist, you know, white nationalist movement in Great Britain, led by Nigel Farage, Le Pen in France. The Dutch were horribly racist, right? And they, they had issues too, Belgium, right? So we're not alone in this, when it comes to this issue of dealing with people that don't look like us. I mean, you think, it's hard to imagine, especially I'm sure for you, that when Italians, for, Italians first came to the United States, they were racialized. Yeah. Okay, you knew this. The Irish, for Christ's sake, were racialized. They're not green. Right, the Irish had always been looked down upon by the British forever, and you compound their ethnic degradation with the fact that they were they are Catholic, were Catholic, are Catholic. That just further uh, intensified American nativism in the eighteen forties and fifties. 
And then you had the massive influx of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, primarily at beginning in the 1880s through roughly 1910. When you look at the composition of that really first significant wave of non, how should I put this, non-Anglo-Saxon, non-white immigrants, Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, Italians, Greeks, Poles, Czechs, right? Lithuanian Jews, Russian Jews, I mean, they're all, that's religion, it's not an ethnic group, they're ethnic, but it's a religion. Massive influx. White America, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant America, couldn't deal with it. Looked down upon it, it took the Italians longer than the Irish to become acculturated and assimilated. Poles, Czechs, the list goes on. They all, I tell my students, one of the major themes of my one of my survey courses is how these individuals, these particular ethnic groups, worked their way toward whiteness. Well, that was easy. Well, compared to African Americans or Hispanics or others, it was a relatively easy process. It took decades, but they eventually did it. The Irish did it, right? The Irish did it by staying in the cities. With a massive influx of Italians and Poles and Czechs and Slovaks and Lebanese and Greeks, etc., of different religions, Jews, right, into a New York, a Philadelphia, a Baltimore, a huge Italian population where you live in Maryland, right? Huge, my God. Um, my when my grandfather first came to the United States through Baltimore, not New York, Ellis Island, but through Baltimore. Um, they, the Irish, back to the Irish, I'm sorry, in Boston most notably, but New York too. Wasp America, when these immigrants from Southern Eastern Europe poured into a Philadelphia, Boston, New York, Baltimore, traditional white Anglo-Saxon Protestant families, particularly the upper classes, they moved out of the inner city to quote, suburbs. The Irish stayed. They took over the city. They became the political bosses. They became the notorious Irish or legendary, I say notorious, legendary Irish cop on the beat. They said, here's our chance. And, and if you look at the history of immigration in the United States, every time a new wave, a different wave, ethnically, you know, racially comes in, it tended to push up the previous immigrant group that had been uh, disdained or ghettoized and such, like the Irish. The Southern Eastern European immigrants were a great boon for the Irish because they finally worked their way toward whiteness, took over, the, took over the inner city, right? Italians will find their way to do that illegally, but they will do it. All these ethnic groups will. I tell my class, because I hate to go into the stereotype of the Italian mafia and all that nonsense, Jesus. You know, the, the, that TV series, The Sopranos, remember The Sopranos? Yeah. That classic, one of the best shows ever on TV. I cringed. It amplified the stereotype. Uh-huh. 
Oh my God. As much as the Godfather did. Exactly. And I, and I went to, when I would go to class, I knew my students were looking at me. I wonder if, you know, how kids, <laughs> you know, I did have one uncle, one uncle who was involved. That's it. Out of the scores of us who came from Italy, over a hundred. Moretta's, Rosati's, Cristopache, I mean, scores of us. One. <laughs> One. So that's pretty good odds. But I don't like to use that example. The example I do use is Joe DiMaggio. One of the greatest ball players of all time. Yeah. I mean, without question. Married to good old uh, Marilyn Monroe for a brief amount of time. For a couple of years, yes. I mean, you can't work your way toward whiteness better than Marion Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> right? But what DiMaggio and other Italian-Americans did is they found a niche with an American culture in which they could excel. Whether it's baseball, give me another example. Tony Bennett, who just died, right? 90-something years old. One of the greatest crooners of all time. Italian-American. They will come to dominate the entertainment industry. And by entertainment industry, I mean what? Not just music and Hollywood. And, but you name it. You'll find an Italian-American. And DiMaggio, to me, is the quintessence of that. Because he's going to be great at playing a game that's considered the American game. And if you look at the ethnic composition of baseball pre-DiMaggio, it's all white Anglo-Saxon and Protestant, right? You had a few ethnics. Tony Lazari came up. He was also from San Francisco with the Yankees before DiMaggio. But you had all the great ball players, the Ty Cobbs, the Roger Hor Rogers Hornsby, the Tris Speakers, the Grover Cleveland Alexanders, Christy Matthews. They're all white Anglo-Saxon Protestant guys. You had a few German Americans in there, but they had been assimilated by then. But all of a sudden, you got a guy like DiMaggio signs with one of the greatest sports franchises ever in American history. It's like the Boston Celtics or LA Lakers in basketball and the New York Yankees in baseball, right? Just across the board, premier sports franchises in, in one of the greatest cities in the world, New York. DiMaggio signs with the Yankees. Huge audience. And he can play. He has a record, 56 straight games with a hit, one hit or more. Well, that, that will never be broken. Never, as far as I'm concerned. And he brings in money. Oh, my God. Puts the Yankees, makes the Yankees the Yankees. How can you now de not deny him whiteness? In the sense, how can white America not accept him? Now, of course, Italians, we are Caucasian. Yes. <laughs> but what does DiMaggio do? He opens the door for white America to accept other ethnics. Classic example, Hank Greenberg. You ever heard of him? Hank Greenberg. Sounds familiar. Contemporary of DiMaggio's. Great ball player. 
Jewish American. Played for the Tigers. Home run king several years in a row. Over 300 lifetime batting average. Great ball player. Jewish American. In the stands, you no longer heard Kike, Jew boy, Dago, Wop. Those epithets disappeared. You saw Joe DiMaggio, Hank Greenberg, as white. A great American citizen. And of course, DiMaggio serves in World War II, along with a host of other ethnic Americans, my father included. Right? So this also helps them work their way toward whiteness. Yeah. I mean, if you ask people you consider Mike Tyson an American, people say, hell yeah, he's American. Um, they won't even be thinking about race because he earned his place. Oh, in their eyes, earned his place, not for me. I have um, ADHD, so I tend to not notice like the racial things, the gender things. I never think about that. I usually just want to talk to someone who I want to talk to. But I've gotten in trouble from psychologists and people I've reached out to that say, do you just have old white men on your podcast? I was like, no, but if I'm trying to find someone to talk about the JFK assassination, sadly, most people that are interested in the JFK. But then I started paying attention to those things. I was like, does that mean that I have to go above and beyond to try and find certain topics that have a certain ethnicity in it? And if anything, it points out the flaws in the educational, I guess, career development. The re reason why there's STEM programs out there that I've talked to people about because of the fact there are these inequalities, which we should be highlighting as well, too. But for yes, me, I agree. I agree with you. I just think I would push it a step further, which was to say that I think this is this what I, I consider myself a patriot, but not in the sense that I guess most people would identify patriotism. I think the way that people are doing patriotism now is this idea of you look like me, you act like me, then we are the same. I My idea of patriotism is that this is a country that we need to make uh, for everyone. We need to make this a part of us. It, we should be proud of where we come from. But I think that sense of patriotism has been formed into maybe it was the government's way of doing this, but a way of making you have blind allegiance. Like there is this thing like home field advantage that I would bring up, like in sports, for instance, the home team gets stronger when they're playing at home because they got their fans all cheering for them. Now, well, I can talk trash on America all day, problems with it for sure. Can, the list goes on for miles. But then someone from another country says something about my country, I get defensive. I have no idea where that comes from, how it got there, but it's a sense of blind allegiance. It's much like with your family. You can talk trash on your family, but someone else does, then you get, you get a problem. For instance – the American president. Why does he have to be born in this country? And what you know, what happens if he's been here his whole life, but he wasn't born here, but he can't be president because of that? That's like these old notions. And I start going, boil this down to I think every government's like this in every country around the world. You go to Jamaica, they're gonna look at you differently because you don't look like them. There's a human instinct of I don't know, just something it, we don't accept something that looks different, mm -hmm. which I think back in the day. I think with the the idea of whiteness, I think it's because that class or those people back then realized that they make this the superior, not in my eyes, obviously, but back then this is what they're doing. If we do this, then we have this total rule over all. And now at this point today where I live and what I've grown up with, I mean, Baltimore is a largely black population. Um, but from what I examine is there's just, just people in positions of power that are willing to 
go after anybody, but they have subjected a certain race. I'm not denying that. But I think this all boils down to, I mean, the concept of eugenics. I hate to say it like that because it really brings it out there to like the the Nazi field. But I'm saying they can't just they're not going to put you in camps and kill you. Maybe like China might or something. But there is there's a real issue with the idea of like we want people to start acting and looking and talking and being just like this. And that's that idea of whiteness. And it's to me, it's always been this question of like, I mean, I, I I don't know. Just because we don't think I would want more people that don't think like me, don't want to be like me so I can also get different varying perspectives and learn. But that's also like, I mean, if you talk about like the way the left thinks about things and the way the right thinks about things, I don't agree. I mean, I don't side in, on any side. I'm kind of apolitical in a sense. I don't believe any of it matters when it comes to voting because I don't think we have power anyway. I feel like there's just, like I said, that's more probably conspiratorial, but like when I get into a position of things, I start examining things of if we really boil down every single governments and every single distinction or every single difference that we have and disdain that other countries have. Like if I went to France, they wouldn't accept me for a while. I might have to earn my place there, but that's just, be, that's just because there is this I would say brainwashed patriotism. That's not the real sense of patriotism that we should be having. We should be caring about our history. We should be caring about everybody, no matter if they were of anything. They shouldn't have to earn their place. But there is this sense of patriotism that has been formed and changed to mean that you can't ever question your government because then now you're having a dissenting view. And that means that you're not a patriot. And now you're just this communist or this anarchist or whatever this is. And that's not right. I mean, I've gotten it through the underground press conversations I've had. Uh, someone will comment, how dare you talk trash on your country while you still live in here and accept its benefits? I'm like, look, I'm happy that I have these, but I want to talk about the Fred Hampton assassination and you telling me that I'm not a patriot because I'm saying that the Chicago police is really fucked up in the way they handled things. And you're saying that, that like, that's, that's the stuff you'll get. And I think it's really important to decipher. And I think this is long been something that's with every single government all around the world which is this great way of twisting and turning and it is boiling down to that main point of eugenics and feel free to disagree with me on those points but i i just i it's from what i've examined and the various people i've talked to i've kind of started to realize that like we're all not like blind to each other but we're also telling only what our side believes in and i think it's really important to understand that like there is this I don't know. It's it's. I think it's not. I don't think if it's a part of the human condition. At least I hope it's not part of the human condition. But this disdain of something that does not look or act how we do. I think this has just been a long way of we've tried to put ourselves in bubbles, and this is how we've developed. And without that, you know, extra culture, without going to another country, without this influx of different varieties of races and all these types of things. You never can truly break out of that one mentality thinking, which would be that white nas that nationalist thing that was superior back in the day. And I mean, when I say superior, I mean, which was just everywhere back in the day, because that's all that was allowed to speak. And now at this point, we have so many varying voices. We need to evolve with that and understand how we live in modern day times and your race doesn't define your citizenship. You're, you know, this type of thing. And we shouldn't seclude others as well, too. I mean, you shouldn't be pushing people down if they want to live a better life. Sorry, I ranted, but I just. No, 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 you did not at all. Very, very illuminating. I think you said something very important. If any, to me, 
this is pretty much what you said, I think. If any nation should be a, 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 a people of tolerance and acceptance, it should be Americans. Yeah. And I mean, of all colors, ethnicities, et cetera, because we are the most pluralistic country in the world and have been for quite some time. So to me, it's mind boggling how we can be so intolerant, so bigoted, so prejudiced toward people who are not like us. Sadly, when you look at the history of immigration, and the Italians are guilty of this, and one group, and they're all, all those Europeans are, ethnics, ethnics are guilty of this. They developed what I call the shut the door, I'm in mentality. In other words, I'm here, I've made it, this Italian, Italian Americans, not me personally, but Italian Americans. Once they had worked their way toward whiteness, had been, had been accepted, this is all post-World War II. If you look at the Italian-American community, and I, this is not going to be a very kind thing for me to say about my own community, Italian-Americans, not all of them, but a whole lot of them, will become some of the most bigoted, anti-immigrant racist in this country for a variety of reasons. And this will begin to manifest itself or began to manifest itself in the 60s going forward. I was surprised to see on January 6th how many of the surnames of those People there, rioting, protesting, had ethnic names. Hispanic, Italian, uh, Eastern European of some sort. I was a moment, let me reverse that. I'll say, what about the number of government people that were involved there as well, too, that were just sitting and waiting? It's like COINTELPRO all over again. I was like, yes, it was. I was surprised, but I shouldn't have been surprised because as an historian, I should have realized, you know, these guys all believe in what? Hey, shut the door. I'm in. They don't want anybody else. They're fearful. And this is true of the Italians, the Irish. Oh, my God. You don't remember busing of the early to mid-70s during the Nixon administration then going forward. Some of the worst anti-busing riots took place in Boston, Massachusetts, the cradle of American liberalism, home of the Kennedys, blah, blah, blah. And who was out there throwing rocks and hurling epithets at the African-American kids being bused to different neighboring schools were the Irish and the Italians. I was like, oh, Jesus. Two of the most discriminated ethnics in, in American history are out there in the forefront of the anti-busing. It's like, oh my God. I, f- I would feel like that would be a way that they felt like they could deflect from their difference from American white nationalism. And then they can start being accepted as Americans because, hey, we don't, we, they all gang up on one. That's the of mentality. Course. That's it. Exactly. 
Exactly. And that's been true of many of these ethnic communities when it comes to very controversial social justice issues. It's literally like elementary school when you're, you know, if you're getting bullied, then you find another kid who's smaller and weaker, then you bully him and now you're part of the cool kids group. Exactly. Very good analogy. And that's what you have had and you still have it. I mean, like I said, it's mind boggling to me as an historian, as a citizen, <laughs> how we are so still a nation, so polarized on race and religion, ethnicity. It's like, wait a minute. The majority of kids in my classroom, I think I have in two classes that are face to face. I probably have maybe in two classes, so 30 in, with 60 kids at my campus, which is like five minutes from my house. I have maybe a total of maybe seven or eight white kids. The rest are all mixed, African-American, mostly Hispanic, because my neighborhood's pretty much Hispanic. Some Muslim kids, Arab kids, just a handful of white kids. You go to the University of Houston, where I taught for 26 years as an adjunct visiting professor. Big survey class, 500 kids plus. Typical big university. It was a great mix of kids. Asian American, ethnic American, African American, Hispanic. I had them all. If you look at the city of Houston, which I'm sure you're aware of, we are the most diverse city in the country. And we get along pretty well in the city of Houston, really well. You're going to love this. The West, some of the West Coast cities have some very serious homeless, homeless problems. Tent cities, San Francisco, Portland, Oregon. My wife and I were just there visiting with my mother-in-law. We were coming back from France, and we had to lay over in Washington, D.C. at um, Reagan. And we got on the plane. And sitting in first class, we've never gone to the coach, was Eric Swalwell, the representative from California, and a few other Democrats and Republicans. And they were coming to Houston. And me and my curiosity and big mouth said, why are you coming to Houston? I asked him, well, we're coming to your city because we're going to study how you've successfully dealt with your indigent homeless population. You have no tents, which is not quite true, but compared to San Francisco or Portland, yeah, a maybe, lot better. Oh my God. We have, we've become the prototype of how to deal with very serious homeless problem, which is poverty. And we have, we provide uh, shelters all over the city. We provide uh, low-income housing all over the city, right in my neighborhood, right? Paid for by Houstonians, taxes. But we would rather see our taxes go to that than some something else that's stupid, of no benefit to any anyone. And so they're coming to study how we've dealt with it. Now, yes, we have homelessness. Yes, we have people on street corners. Yes, we do. But compared to, say, a Portland, Oregon, 
or a San Francisco don't have it now. Did they did they make it illegal to sleep on the street in Texas? No. Yes, but no. It's not illegal per se, but given that it's 108 degrees out today here in Houston, I don't know what is Baltimore, but we it's it's a health hazard. Yeah. Very serious. And so we've we've had this policy in place. My God, I've been here forever. Oh, for the last at least 15 years. And what I was going to say was that Houston and Austin in particular have always been cities. I wrote a book with one of my colleagues on the history of Houston years ago. And we we did a lot of research. And one of the things we found out about Houston's power elite for the last hundred plus years is that Houston wants to be a city that's viewed as a modern, progressive city that wanted wants to attract business from outside. And Houston's city fathers, as well as Austin's, for the last hundred plus years, said, look, we can't have any types of urban blight no visible poverty, homelessness, and most important, we cannot have racial issues and tensions. So when you look at integration in both Austin and Houston, I can't speak for Dallas. I don't know. Dallas is a large John Bircher society down there, so I would roll with that. Bravo. Bravo for you. Bravo. <laughs> exactly. And not just being biased either, but you're 100% correct. Um, they said, look, we can't have these. If you look at the history of integration, both the city of Houston and the city of Austin in the late 40s through the 50s into the 60s were in the vanguard in the nation, not just the south of integrating schools, all public spaces, etc. Now, is that was that altruistic and humane uh, was it altruistic was it genuine concern for race equality Mm, maybe but regardless of the motivation by 1960 Houston was a fully integrated city and so was Austin now will there still be other issues down the road relative to busing and such yes late 60s, early 70s in both cities. But Houston is a safe space. Austin, safe space for non-whites. Has been for a long time. I'm not just being a city booster. I've lived here a long time, 47 years. And my wife and I have seen a lot of changes. A lot of changes. The, hom- the homeless thing is an issue. My issue is why doesn't anybody just stop paying NASA $26 billion a fucking year and deal with the homeless population? They could have solved it by now if they would have just funneled that money in there. Like I give New York a lot of crap. I don't like New York at all. I know people say, well, it's like the progressive center of the world. The progressiveness isn't the problem. 
The problem is that Blasio got $950 million for a mental health fund to take care of the people of New York, and he lost the money, has no idea where it went. So, I mean, I'll ask I'll ask you this question. And this is my idea of like, if you like, I don't, I'm not going to vote again this year. I know people go, oh, it's your right and your duty to vote. I just don't believe in it. And look, RFK Jr. would stand a lot where I stand on every single subject he talks about. But I've also had, I've had communications with him. And I just, it makes me kind of question the Camelot theory. I don't really necessarily believe on certain things of that. But what I what I would say is you have to have a president whose whole entire campaign is going to be spending his whole term rooting out corruption in the system. That means every single congressman, that means any single senator, everything. Show me the receipts of the money that you guys have spent. I want to see exactly where that money went to. And people, people aren't going to like that. Congressmen and other people aren't going to like that as well either. But you literally have to dedicate a whole term to fixing Congress, fixing the House, fixing whatever, putting on term limits, kicking people out who are doing insider trading, rooting out all the corruption. You might get fucking killed, but you have to do this and the people have to want it because then the next term, if they go with you again and they trust you again, then you can start making some real impact and changes because trying to suggest things now, you're having a basically one person go, I'm not going to do that because it's going to mess up this thing I have. Maybe if you do me this favor, I might think about it. And then you have all this favor game playing that's going on there, which is why I said I, I don't think Nixon was in all like 100% the worst evil in the world was only because he understood the political system from when he was vice president. And if you look at how the game runs of that inner politics of you do me this favor, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. I mean, the fact that as soon as Nixon goes down, there's like no evil anymore in the American polit political system. I was like, no, there's evil there, but they found who their person on the cross is going to be that they have to burn. And that's what I try and say to people. And people don't like hearing that because the history books always teach, obviously, Nixon was the worst evil and he was the only thing bad about. But I, I just try and show people, I was like, the whole system's corrupt. I mean, we built a sandcastle. And right now we need to understand that we need to tear this down and start building up. And that doesn't mean revolution. It just means we need to understand that we have to start holding the people that are supposed to be taking care of us and caring about us, responsible for the actions that they're obviously not doing. And yeah, so. If you, resurre if you resurrected the founders, George, Johnny, Boyd, Adams, Jefferson, Hamilton, all of them, you resurrected them, brought them to what you just said, the condition of the country right now, they would say, we need to start all over. We have a template, we have a template. But we've got a, we can use this template we created in 1787, but man, we got to start all over. When they wrote that document, the Constitution, they purposely, as best as they could, because they were brilliant men, tried to look to the future because they knew the country was going to grow and change, et cetera. But as brilliant and savvy as those guys were, they never saw what we see today. Yeah, the internet and all that. They never saw that coming. How could they? How could they? But with their sense of history, which to a man they studied fanatically, rabidly, they said, we can try to predict this future. We can try to predict this result, right? They all knew, for example, 
in their own historical moment that the issue of slavery could plunge this country into a civil war. They all knew it. Even though they, most of them were slave owners, they all knew it. And they tried to address it as best as they could. Now you can, you can lambaste them for not going further and just abolishing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That wasn't their reality, but they knew it. Jefferson called slavery the fire bell in the night. He knew Jefferson. Washington knew. They all knew. Hamilton knew. That's why he opposed the, the three-fifths compromise. But at the same time, he says, okay, I'll accept it because what's most important is, is right now, we've got to get this constitution ratified. We've got to get this government set up, put it into effect. And most of them, in fairness, believe that slavery was a dying institution, that it would die a natural death with, with mechanization, et cetera. They did not foresee the cotton kingdom, which gave slavery a whole new lease on life after the War of 1812. They didn't foresee that. How could they? Most of them were dead by the War of 1812, right? And slavery at the time of the Constitution was dying, right? Tobacco had killed it in your neck of the woods, Maryland, Virginia, right? Rice was profitable in the Carolinas, but would... The American, the American rice planters, Southern rice, rice planters lost their most valuable market, which was the British Caribbean. Indigo was never that profitable. So if you look historically at the time period from roughly 1788, 87, 1780s to 1810, if you look at the manumission rate on Southern plantations, tobacco, rice, indigo, it's pretty high. Freeing of slaves. Not because you believe in racial equality, you got to be kidding me, but because slavery was no longer viewed as profitable. So you look at the history of manumission in Virginia and Maryland in particular, it was astronomical compared to, say, the South Carolina. Those guys are holding on. But in Virginia, the Tidewater area of your neck of the woods, you can have a huge free African-American population in Maryland, in Virginia, especially Maryland, by 1800. Because those Tidewater planters were tobacco planters. Where are you going to grow tobacco? You, you, tobacco has killed the soil. So you're going to maintain a costly institution? If you're not making any profits from tobacco, they freed them. So if, you're, if you look at the Black population, African-American population in Baltimore, circa 1800, it's substantial. Free black, free black population, substantial in Baltimore and that Tidewater area. Maybe it was money that fucked us all. I hate to say it like that, but it seems like every single notion or everything that could be based on any decisions, it seems like we're changing or evolving, seems to be what's the most profitable and what's losing the profit. I mean, now it's employees getting paid money to just do their jobs. They're going to raise minimum wage again, which I think is, a, I mean, I make this a little, not even anything more than minimum wage, like a quarter more, I think. Um, but they're going to raise that up again. And But that's prices are going up. I mean, it's hard as shit for everyone's losing money. I think the dollar is now, what, 17 cents less than what it was before, like two years ago. Sure, and it's sure like- 
but they've maintained the tax the same. Why don't you lower the taxes down so then we can actually still survive? I mean, I think it's a difficult issue, but there's a lot of people. It's not that people are refusing to work. It's just there's a lack of willingness to want to work because people feel like they don't matter. And there's also a large amount of machine implementation being put into jobs now. Oh, Autom autom automation has always been a huge killer in the American economy. Always. You look back to the 60s radicals. That was one of their most important themes. And the Luddite was that technology. Yeah, technology was going to destroy the American workforce. I just, uh, one of the chapters I just finished in my, on my current book was uh, I focused on ARAP, Economic Research uh, Program, started by SDS in northern cities. And they wanted to create an interracial movement of the poor, white SDSers did. So they went into the bowels of these working class, very poor urban slums and ghettos in Baltimore and Newark and Cleveland and places like this. And what they discovered was that many of the un unemployed that they were dealing with in their program um, had lost their job because of automation. So in the radical 60s mind, this was one of the greatest factors in American working class unemployment. And if those jobs require a higher skill level, which they do, technology jobs, then what do you do with this individual who doesn't have those skills, barely finished high school, he'll be mired in poverty forever. And the ARAP project was a dismal failure because the poor simply weren't, they could not politicize the poor you had ethnic divisions, you had racial divisions in these neighborhoods, and the program lasts barely two years. LBJ tried the same thing with the community action program. Bobby Kennedy, RFK senior, huge fan of CAP. And both LBJ and Kennedy and other 60s liberals realized that empowering the poor making them part of the pro programs to better their lives, what Bobby called maximum feasible participation, was unrealistic because the poor don't care about that. What they care about is food on the table, is, okay. jo is job security. And so poor 60s radicals and 60s liberals realized this too late and by the time they realize it, you had the long, hot summers beginning with Watts, but really 67 and 68. When you look at those race riots, they weren't race riots. If you look at those inner city riots in Detroit and Newark and Cleveland, Baltimore, places like that, even Watts, South, South LA after Rodney King. The 90s riots? Yes. You know what is pretty fascinating about that, and I know it's a controversial take, but those um, they I, I wish they would change the name because I don't even like the name of it. But it's the rooftop Koreans, 
the people that were out on the, the I'm sorry. I saw one of the pictures of them. I showed it on air. One of them has a cigarette in his hand and he's on a r- roof with a rifle. I'm like, this is the most badass thing I have ever seen in my entire life. Like despite every other context of whatever that situation is, just the dudes wearing, he has the, like he has the giant thick glasses and a striped, like where's Waldo t-shirt with a cigarette in his hand. The one dude just has one in his mouth, like a, a double shotgun in his hand. I'm just like, I understand there's a, like, I understand the contestant, the different, you know, history and the, uh, whatever between the African-American community and the Koreans down there. But to me, that picture, I was just like, I've never seen that before. I was watching a documentary and it popped up. I'm surprised I've never heard about them at all. It wasn't taught to me at all. And that iconic photo, I was like, even the guy who had, like had a gun out and he has a fanny pack on. I'm like, if if anything, this doesn't this represents everybody trying to they're struggling. And this is also what happens when people are like struggling so much that they're fighting each other. Like, it, I mean, it's a big like to me, it represented a bigger issue to the power oh, system. Well, of course, it's a huge issue. You have com- very disfranchised, very alienated, marginalized. Uh, African-Americans in places like L.A., Hispanics, Koreans even, right? And the ethnic racial tension between these various groups is very intense. I don't know about Baltimore, if what the tensions are there, what groups have that kind of antagonism. But I know on the West Coast, it's pretty endemic. In San Francisco, same thing. In Baltimore, it's probably more black on black, um, you know, gang stuff that goes on here. But also, I don't think the government does anything to help with that. And I don't think I don't know what they would be able to do, but I think they honestly stirred up more to be 100 percent honest with you. It seems like now everything has been divided amongst ourselves instead of focusing on the institutions of power that should be making our lives. I mean, it's not a stupid thing to say that if you have a happy people, you have an easier sense of government you you literally can function better and would make common sense you'd want to keep your people happy but they don't seem to want to do that it seems like now it's just gotten to the point of if you can isolate yourselves in your 10 billion dollar mansions then everything should just be to make me richer sure no that's that's always been true in the united states Uh, americans are driven by acquisition the ability to consume decent incomes you alluded to that earlier uh a decent wage, a decent job, respectability, that drives American happiness. And it has for decades, not since the beginning of the country, but for decades. I guess this is the beginning of the country. You made a white guy happy in the early republic by giving him what? Access to cheap land. Go out west, west meaning from the Appalachians to the Mississippi River, could buy an acre of land for a buck and a quarter. That made white guys happy, white men happy, right? Same is true. You have all these different immigrants come to the United States. Why? Because they have the they want the American dream, right? That we all aspired to. I haven't. You're too young to have it, perhaps. I haven't. I'm sitting in my nice little suburban house, having a wonderful conversation with you. I have all the material things I've ever wanted. Great family, great wife, lots of kids, lots of nieces and nephews, got it all, right? So those who don't have that, there are too many. 
to me as a traditional liberal Democrat, you can empower power the try to empower the poor, the marginalized, disfranchised. You can try to politicize them all you want. But the bottom line, you want to get rid of poverty in this country, I reduce it down to a very simple task. And that is you give people decent, respectable jobs. You give them hope that they too can have access to the American dream. Regardless of color, regardless of religion, you give them jobs. This is what FDR did in the 30s. He kept that American dream going because he, in the back of his mind, his greatest fear was, holy shit, we could have a revolution on our hands if I don't do something. And that was and motivated FDR real quick. So he gave job, handed out jobs. He literally paid you with the Civil Works Administration. Reagan, Ronald Reagan used to tell a story. He, one of his first jobs out of college, he worked for the Civil Works Administration, handing out jobs. And it was in some in Iowa. He was in Iowa somewhere, and maybe Des Moines or someplace. I can't remember. And he ran up jobs to give guys. Now, these were all white guys, right? So he calls up his regional boss and says, "Well, I have no more jobs to give out today. What do you want me to do?" The line goes out the door, and these guys all want to work. His boss tells him. Make jobs up. Look outside and see what needs to be done. Reagan literally paid guys in this Iowa city where he was working to rake leaves on the boulevard. And those guys were so happy to do that. Now, would that be true today? Doubtful. But the concept, it's the concept. You get rid of poverty by providing jobs or you get rid of poverty by what people don't want to hear, a redistribution of income and wealth. Yeah, some, Translated. Some tax, some taxes make like a flat rate tax kind of makes sense on certain things, but on every but on everything else is like all we really need is the flat rate tax. Like you shouldn't have to be having to pay a tax and mortgages on your there's just a bunch of stuff that doesn't make sense if you own the, the like your house and everything then you shouldn't have to keep paying but i understand uncle sam wants a piece i i think it's the the excuse i usually hear is everyone goes well uncle sam wants a piece my whole thing is like i think the capitalistic like i'm not like i'm not i wouldn't say i'm not defending capitalism here but i'm kind of looking at it like i think the way in the society we are today with how everything is gone if i was going to suggest a real change would that the capitalistic model that did save us at the time of the great depression the one we went with, I just think it's gotten off track. And I think if we really boil it down, no monopolies, we can't have, you can't make it to where it should be ease of access for everyone. That means any person that wants the American dream, that wants to build a business, it shouldn't be damn near impossible for them to get ahead or get bought out by another corporation who's already so far ahead. So when it comes to everyone should have the opportunity to make money and to be able to excel if they put in the effort and plenty of people are putting in the effort. It's not a lack of effort. That's the problem is the fact that the elite class or whoever already has obtained it has bought every route to make sure that they are the only ones that will keep getting that 
12. And that's the issue. I think that a lot of people or the, the, the capital, like, you know, capitalist world that we live in, I think a lot of people would have, if they had equal opportunity and had a chance to be able to get ahead without being bought out or without certain issues starting to happen or without being bankrupted by whatever, taking a shot in the dark. We, for the longest time, pitched the idea that you can be your own entrepreneur. And it, we're, we, that's what American is built. America is built off of being your own entrepreneur. Go ahead. You can start your own company. You can get that thing. Then the pandemic happened and a lot of people took that shot and they failed. And the only reason that they failed was, is that it was the illusion of being an entrepreneur. They had already locked the system. You couldn't get in. So you basically wasted all your time and wasted your effort yelling at a wall because they had built this wall there for so long. So many of my friends had basically given up. Like, I guess it wasn't for me. I was like, it's because it's so damn impossible to get ahead because it's a monopoly. We say we don't have them, but we know the cable companies won. Hell, throw the gas company in there as well, too. Everyone changes and adjusted their prices based on what the other competitor has. But that's the thing is that we've been told for the longest time, and I'm starting to be in more belief of it now, is that we live in the illusion of democracy and we never had one to begin with. We've understood the concept and the pictures and the images that they show us of what it is, but this isn't truly one. This is one that only goes to, I mean, there's no middle class anymore, but it, it, it's something, that's why I said I'm a misanthrope. I've noticed all this and I'm like, oh God, there's not a whole fix. It. There's no, me even yelling about it in a podcast doesn't do anything about it. It doesn't educate people. It doesn't do anything. All it does is you get to a point where you start realizing is that, do you let it upset you anymore? Do you, do you try and tell people to change their opinions, even though they might not listen to you anyway? You know, it's, I think the best thing that you can do is try your best to feel like you're making a difference. And a lot of people can try their best to do a positive thing and hopefully come out least unscathed. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what I try to do in my classes is to try to make these kids aware of history. Same, have the same discussion you and I have had today and turn them into better informed, civic-minded citizens. Now, is that idealistic? Am I delusional? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But that's what that's the only way I can live with myself and approach my classes and my profession. I've only got a few more years I'm going to retire. I've been doing this now for 42 years. It's a long time. And there are moments when I get very disillusioned, depressed with students. Now with the advent of AI, <laughs> with AI being used, they use it to write their essays. And that's they just huge... recreated a new Beatles song with AI. All right, there you go. And it sounds really good too. That's the scary part. My wife was doing that this morning. She was fooling around and found it. Yeah, I heard her in the background. Yeah, she probably saw my story that I, I put it up on my Instagram story. I think oh, she, yeah, she, yeah. she follows you. So that's where, okay, it, that's where she got I'm it. a big Beatles fan. And I, when I heard it, I was Me like, there's a, there's a few things that misses the human aspect to it. Sure. But it, it, for something where people that are no longer with us and Paul McCartney is like, I want to get the Beatles back together to do this one thing. It yeah. sounds really good. I mean, the best one's Amy Winehouse. That one, oh, that AI yeah. nailed that one. Yeah, she was telling me about that too. But yeah, I mean, AI does have some positive benefits, i.e. what you just described. But when I give essays now, I know damn well the kids are going to, plug in the topic to some AI site 
And there's the essay written for him. It's like, ah, oh, shit, what am I going to do now? It's like, ah, some of my colleagues are going to have, give oral exams. Well, I'm thinking about that maybe, but God, with 32 kids, how am I going to logistically do that? But anyway, I think, if, I think if you ask them questions about certain things that you were teaching and just have them get their brief rundown of their own, I mean, you, my understanding is probably not what would be soaked in from what a person would be teaching me. But, you know, I, like I said, I learned a little bit differently just through doing the show. But surprisingly, if you just had the kids, like if they knew that they were going to, what, what's your breakdown of the Great Depression? And then they just kind of gave a quick rundown, even if it's the light stuff of it, be like, okay, that's right, but let's add on to that. I mean, the essay thing, technology, that's just going to be damn near impossible to catch. I wish I had that when I was in school. God, I would have well, passed. Everybody does. Yeah, everybody did, myself included, I think, hate to admit it. But uh, yeah. So anyway, but that's a, that's another topic, my Lord. <laughs> Jeez. So, so. I mean, do you think, are you, do you think you're optimistic about a lot of people are soaking it up or do you think um, you're well, I, probably I think... a little bit more pessimistic about change? Oh, I'm a little more pessimistic. I think it comes with age and experience. I try not to be jaded or cynical, but it's hard. It's hard. I mean, I've seen a lot of history in my time. And you would think we would learn as a topic of our, the theme of our conversation, that we would learn. But we still live in a society that's systemically racist. We still live in a society that's polarized, even more probably, this is the most polarized I can remember. Even in the 60s, we were not as polarized. Even the most radical of radicals of the 60s always held out hope in the, in the, in the people that they would find themselves again. I'm not so sanguine anymore. I'm not. My <clears throat> biggest fear is if we have another Trump, another Trump presidency. I don't think that would be good for this country. Could it be the death of democracy? Maybe. That's a little too what exaggerated, but I am concerned. And then we have uh, the candidate who's running on the Democrat. He's too old to be president. I hate. To be so sound so ageist. He fell asleep at Maui when he went there. That was an issue. I was so mad at his family. They're like, Yeah, we're gonna have him run again. I was like, You guys suck. You know you guys shouldn't be having him go up there. He's a little too old to be doing that. That's so mean. It is mean. And and it just makes him politically it weakens his position because Americans can say, Jesus, even myself, who's a staunch Democrat, Joe, please don't run again. But then the question is. Who will Democrat? Who's out there? You got an RFK Jr. You got some people in the wings, but Trump could be a juggernaut again in 2024. I, I mean, he, if you look at those, I don't know if you watched the debates the other night. I watched maybe half of them. I caught them late, and that was just ridiculous. And none of those guys, none of the candidates even close to what trump's numbers are <laughs> i watched it but i same thing like what i with i get why why reason i don't vote is because what i get from every politician is like i hear what you're saying but i don't believe what you're saying 
and it's not that it doesn't stand with what I believe and what they're saying. I just don't believe they believe in what they're saying at all. I think it's like, this is going to get me a lot of votes when they say it. And I'm like, I, I was like, I just don't, I, I rather someone just tell me how it is. Like where it's like, can I, can I do that? Probably not. It's probably going to take me a long time to be able to do that, but that's just the honest truth. And if they ask a question, say, you don't know, if you don't know, don't give me a bullshit response written by your campaign manager or whatever. Just tell me you don't know. I feel a thousand times more comfortable. We'll figure it out together. Yes. The candidate that, that came the closest to that ideal was Bobby Kennedy. I'll tell you a story to, to illuminate this. In 68, he's murdered, of course, in Los Angeles, early June. He just won the California primary. You believe it was Sirhan alone? No, of course not. All right, good, because I'm, I'm diving down the RFK thing. I'm interviewing a bunch of people on it. No, no, no. 14 shots and the gun only hold eight? Like, how do you do that? Okay. It's same with James Earl Ray, who did not act alone in killing MLK. Yeah. JFK, certainly. Oh, my God. If you believe that wasn't a conspiracy, you've got to be. Did you see the new fence at Dealey Plaza? No. Someone already writ on it with Sharpie and they said the trees saw everything. I go, that is the best quote I have ever seen. And like I said, I'm making a JFK documentary with over 100 something researchers, Blakey from the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And hopefully it'll be on Netflix at some point. I got a buddy who owns Wonder Film that he's going to take a look at it to see and i told him i was like i don't honestly want to make money off of it um i really just think this is important it's just documenting from 63 to 2023 what we've learned from all the documentation and things of that sort that was definitely it's conspiracy i've always kind of leaned i'll tell you the bobby kennedy story in a minute i've always kind of believed it was the cia renegades from the cia wet boys because A month before DM was assassinated, Kennedy wanted him removed, not murdered. CIA was in charge of that. And this is fact. This is not making shit up here. Kennedy was so angry with the CIA that they botched this whole operation that he per massive purge of the CIA. Yeah, he started shutting down their bases. Precisely. He did that earlier in his administration after the Bay of Pigs. Yeah, where he fired Alan Dulles. Mm-hmm. So to me, there's a possibility, but anyway. Back the to only, Bobby. The only thing that would, well, the only thing that would be what people have somehow construed that Kennedy said, which he never actually fully said, or we don't have any documentation that he ever said it to a news reporter or anything like that, was about scattering the CIA into a thousand pieces. That, I guess, has been said and been told and behind closed doors to a personal aide, and then that was somehow out there. But like I said, I can't – I try and stick by like what I can prove and what I can factually show. And I mean, when they looked into Dag Hammarskjöld's death and where uh, the UN did in 2014, because they were thinking Alan Dulles did it because of the Patrice Lumumba thing that happened with him. I mean, you look at the, the way the political assassinations was used as a tool around that time. And here's an aside story for you. I did through one of my JFK episodes, a guy that at the age of 20, he met Margaret Oswald and got to know her personally and got to like, I mean, this guy's like in his late 60s 70s now um but he interviewed jesse curry 
And this was to me, this gives me goosebumps even talking about it. He asked Jesse Curry, who was the Dallas police um, detective in one of those uh, interrogations of Oswald. Um, he asked him, he goes, did you ever have doubts about Oswald being the lone assassin? And Jesse Curry said, turn off your tape recorder. So everything I will tell you right now, it's hearsay. I can't even use it in court. But to me, as someone who studied it, I'm a big fan of this. Like it just to me, it just gives me goosebumps. He goes, the second time they were interrogating Oswald, they asked him, where was Oswald? We need to know where you were. Were you up there on the second floor, first floor, whatever? And he stated that I was on the first floor with a Coke. Um, and you can tell because there was two African-American people that were there that saw me there. And then they go, okay, we'll go speak. They spoke with them and came back and said, those two African-American people said they never saw you there at all. And he goes, how would I know that they were there if I wasn't there myself? And at that moment, this is what Jesse Curry says. Jesse Curry says, at that moment, I knew I had doubts. And I go, so to me, it's it's not anything you can use as evidence in court. But to me, it's it's hearsay. But it's to me, it's really important because he has no reason to lie. I mean, I've interviewed plenty of JFK people that are damn near impossible to find. Um, I'm trying to get Thomas Noguchi right now, who did the autopsy for RFK. Uh, but uh, most thorough autopsy in the world. 36 page report and everything like that. And he said that it was three shots up close behind RFK. And everyone says that Sirhan was standing in front. Come on now. No, no, it's we, when it comes to history of assassinations, you always want a lone gunman because that's been the pattern. John Wilkes Booth was part of a conspiracy for Christ's sake. Dulles sell, Alan Dulles said that to the Warren Commission when they were investigating Kennedy. He said every major political assassination has been done with one lone nut. And I'm like, why would he say that? Because he wants to cover it. <laughs> and Wilkes Booth, at the same time John Wilkes Booth was killing poor Abraham Lincoln, there were other Confederate fanatics going after Andrew Johnson, uh, Henry Seward, and all of them. So it's that's this is not new. It's called now, the Society but, and the Spectacle. Yes, exactly. Now, there were some nutcases like with Garfield and McKinley. But not with JFK, not with Lincoln, for sure. I mean, Ronald Reagan's attempt. Obviously, that guy was crazy. But anyway, I'll tell you the RFK story real quick. Move on. Um, so anyway, I, I saw Bobby. He came to my university, Santa Clara out in California, and gave a talk just before he headed to L.A. And he was talking about his ideas for employment uh for jobs, for how to create jobs for people, et cetera. And some guy in the audience raises his hand and said, well, this sounds great, Mr. Senator Kennedy, but who's going to pay for this? <laughs> and Bobby, without missing a beat, says, you are. You know, in other words, you want change? You got to pay for it. And who has to pay for it? Those that can most afford it. You want to end poverty, urban blight? You got to pay for it. To me, that was the most honest answer a politician ever gave. Yeah. From all accounts, I've heard from people that have met Bobby Kennedy, worked on his campaign and everything like that, that I've talked to. He seemed much like a straight shooter. Seemed like, But I also think you can't have that in a political system when it comes to the ideas of the political system. If you even have a thought like that against all the other people, all the people like Hoover, Alan Dulles, you're getting taken out a hundred percent. And people can call that conspiracy. It could just mean they'll do like now they'll, they'll smear you in the news. They'll do whatever they possibly can. I mean, when RFK Jr. announced he was running, 
they immediately started calling him anti-vaxxer this, anti-vaxxer that. Articles were all coming out saying anti-vaxxer runs for president. They slandered him. They took him out of context because he said something about a bioweapons thing in an interview. And they took him out of context. He posted the full clip to show that he wasn't, you know, he didn't say it like how they reported it out there. But it was because of the fact the things he wants to do are against the system and that's why i try and highlight to people i was like if you understand how the political system works and i haven't been involved and i don't know how it works but i've heard interviews with tulsi gabbard and plenty other people that have explained it's a frat house fix the frat house yeah, it is. i like that term it is a frat house i mean the fact that when i came was coming back to houston from washington here's eric swallow on a handful of aides and other congress people sitting in first class right so if you if you if you are the people's representative, you should be sitting there in the back in coach with the rest of us, right above the or right under the oxygen tanks. There you go. <laughs> Shit, I couldn't believe it. I mean, he responded to my questions and such. We had about a five minute conversation. I mean, he was a nice guy, but he was surprised that I would ask him. You know, well, who are you? <laughs> so anyway. No, John, we covered a lot, man. I appreciate the time. It's always a pleasure chatting with you, dude. Thank you so much for giving me the time on the Sunday. I'll I'll have to have you back on again. We'll do a full deep dive into the JFK, RFK, the political assassinations. If you know stuff about Fred Hampton, please, let's do some Fred Hampton discussion. We can do Fred Hampton next time. You bet. I had Jeffrey Haas on here, who was um, the public. Yeah, I I forgot what his official title was, public defender or people's attorney or something like that for uh, Fred Hampton. Um, But where can people find your links, man? Oh, um, I really don't have many links. I've got your link and I got, I just did a podcast for my college. What's it called? Beyond the Road. And we talked about the Cold War. Okay. So anyway, but well, I'm not. I'll, I'll link your Amazon um, stuff in the description of this episode and any other links I find of where we can, they can find your books and any other works you have. Be great, man. Well, Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.